Accent Answered is a production of the College of Liberal and Applied Arts at Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent those of Stephen F. Austin State University. Final Girls and Hockey Mask. Why do we love horror films so much? That's the topic of today's podcast. I'm Tom Reynolds, the moderator here at Stephen F. Austin State University. Uh, my three guests are going to introduce themselves. Paul, why don't you go first? Hi, I'm Dr. Paul Sandel. I'm a professor of history here at Stephen F. Austin State University. Hey, I'm Steve Marsden. I'm a professor of English at SFA. Um, and I'm Meredith Janning. I'm working on my MA in publishing at Stephen F. Austin State University. Okay, so uh, you're all very, you, you, all three of you are very erudite and disturbed individuals because you all seem to love horror films and are actually scholars in them. I was thinking of this because um, a couple weeks ago I watched uh, on YouTube, for those of you listening, you can see this. It's the 1910 production of Frankenstein, which is produced by, of all people, Thomas Edison. And uh, it's a silent film of 15 minutes long. It's kind of fun to watch. Um, it's not scary by any means today, but at the time it apparently horrified people. It came out in 1910, but it kind of shows the uh, longevity of horror films. Like one of the first feature films ever made was technically a horror film. And then through the 30s, the Universal films with Dracula and the Mummy and Frankenstein and the Wolfman. And it was always a really reliable genre for uh, the studios to go to because they always had an audience to it. And so it's had a long, long, long arc to it. And it still is popular today. So um, now in, t- in the context of today, why do you think these films are still effective? Paul, what do you think? Well, I think the first thing to note is that they are still so successful um, that there is still such a huge market for it. I mean, just recently, you have films like It coming out that's getting hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, So I think that's the first thing to point out that it is actually popular. Um, And then to to maybe discuss, um, you know, why like it? Well, why not? You know, there's a a lot of people who uh, might stick their nose up at it or um, look down upon somebody who likes that. And it's precisely because I think of those dark associations that come to mind with horror, um, particularly dark personality traits. It might be reflective of the viewer. That's its worst case scenario. But I think in the end, um, horror is still so successful because it allows us to see sort of the, uh, the dark side. It allows us to look at what we've been told not to look at. Well, Steve, what is it uh, you think that we are looking at that we're not supposed to? What is it uh, you think is appealing? Well, there's a couple of things, right? So on the one hand, there's things that we ordinarily wouldn't want to see. So we've got all of the reminders of the things we don't want to be reminded of, like that we're made of meat and can break, um, things like that. So, so the physical body horror, the horror of embodiment, the horror of aging, the horror of um, helplessness, all of these things. Hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, so I think that that's part of it. I also think that horror, just like the Gothic before it, is a really good way to look at social issues that people don't want to look at directly. So we might not want to talk about what the the horror of being a teenage girl, but we might like it better as a werewolf movie. So that's Ginger Snaps, for instance. Um, so where, where you've got two sisters and, and, and 
they're growing apart as one of them's a little bit younger than the other and 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 you know one way to talk about uncomfortable passions and stuff is to translate them into a different into a different kind so instead of uh, sexuality or something it becomes everybody else she's going to be the one to kind of take care of the end of the movie wrap the plot up uh, as far as horror movie plots get wrapped up before all the sequels follow but uh, essentially she is the survivor um, and it's typically a woman or teenage girl or whoever it is but um, I found that in many genres you don't really see that like heroic character being a woman except for in these horror movies where she's kind of forced to be that hero for herself. And, and why do you think that is? Um, I mean, I think it kind of goes to, like, in older tropes, older stereotypes, not necessarily, like, reflected views from today, but in ye olden days, you know, why would a woman be the hero when there's a perfectly capable man, like, right there? So when you kind of isolate women from everyone else and they're kind of facing up against everything that terrified like the, the like worst case scenario um it's kind of a way to like put her in that spot of like what would you do when there is no capable man like around you well i always thought that that was kind of a plot device for the audience because a lot of teenage couples you know the dates are going to these movies and when you have the last survivor being this young girl being chased around by the it's always a guy, a maniacal guy on the hockey mask with a chainsaw or a machete going after her, then it sort of like brings everyone in the audience into it because if it's some guy, it's like, oh, well, geez, why doesn't he just pull a gun out? And shoot it? Because she's the girl, she has to be, you know, it's like this dominating force. And I honestly think it's almost to appeal to the audience sort of to keep them more swept in it. That's just my take on it. Well, I would also argue that um, for those who enjoy a horror movie, there's a level of empathy here, a desire to be affected, um, and so we can empathize. And in our culture, in our society, as uh, is true with many cultures and societies throughout the time and throughout the world, is you're taking um, possibly the socially weakest person in our culture, a teenage girl, and inflicting horrendous events upon her. And then our ability to empathize with uh, her character and put ourselves in that vulnerable situation, I think, can appeal to many people. Um, though there's a lot of critique of the final girl trope. Yeah, well, the camera also, until fairly recently, is a, is kind of gendered the male, is gendered male, right? So um, the camera likes to look at what it likes to look at. And so if you have an ugly 50-year-old man running through the woods, <laughs> um, scantily clad, pursued by our, our, our killer, um, at least... Initially, it feels like a, a bunch of that trope starts out as an exploitation trope. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Meredith, do you think these films uh, have run out of ways to scare people? That's a question I want to throw out to everyone. Do you think that these, because uh, a lot of the films today, which are horror films, are basically slasher-based or torture-based or something like this. It's not some supernatural being. It's really some maniacal saw-like killer or something like this where this could happen. Um, but do you think there's, they've run out of ways to scare people? Well, I guess I maybe shouldn't speak for everyone, but I will probably always be afraid of the possibility of being murdered by a strange man <laughs> chasing after me. I mean, I think when you see it in a movie, it's not necessarily scary because it kind of has that like cheesy element to it, so you, you can kind of separate it from what's real. But I really don't think it's going to run out of ways to scare people because the way things are changing now 
there's always going to be new fears that you can kind of cash in on. Um, you know, just like with everything we've been seeing with the pandemic, even like that, that just, that's a whole new treasure trove of things that we can isolate from the pandemic. And yeah, remember when you were afraid of all that? Well, you know, here's 15 movies about it. Likewise, the technology of the scare, uh, there's always kind of a a little bit of an arms race uh, back there. So when you saw the introduction of the, of the, what, the sudden big jump scare from J-horror, um, like the, the the thing moving behind, yeah, you know, that, that kind of thing. Then within two or three movies, that's pretty stale. And there's another thing, right? Just so it's like you expect something, and then the sophistication of of the timing for those kinds of things. So just from a filmmaker's point of view, there's always new tricks being added, and also social situations like like I like you were saying change and we're always going to have plenty of new problems and, uh, and, and new ways to look at it. So a lot of the horror we see nowadays is actually, you know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's been a couple of years since get out yeah. know, where, where we're kind of talking about the awkwardness of social situations and, 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 and things like that, where we're kind of ex- examining race, where we're examining, um, the the finer points of family relationships because like if you watch a movie like um, Midsummer which is a, what it's a breakup movie um, at at its heart you know it's about it's about being surrounded by friends who aren't really your friends um, and or something like Hereditary there'll never be as long as the tra- traditional family exists there will be an endless well of horror to exploit. Have you seen Hereditary, uh, Paul? I have though it's been quite a while since yeah because I, I saw it and uh, I was really really struck by it I thought it was a very fresh film I, mean, I, was, I was kind of curious to see it and I don't know that film really had an effect because you know, a lot of you know okay I get it it's you know you could anticipate what's going to be scary what's not and that film there was something about it that really struck with me that, that struck struck me and stuck with me for a while because the way the, the sort of the you know the way that was, everything was sort of revealed in sort of like layers and things like that. I was mm-hmm. I was very impressed with it. Mm-hmm. You, you, you always said that you find a lot of horror in suburbia. Well, I think with Hereditary and, and um, related to a lot of the Final Girl stuff, we constantly see the American family under attack. And as you pointed out, we're always going to have that. And I think that's ever present in uh, suburbia, right? Suburbia is also synonymous with the families that live inside of it. Um, and so looking at suburbia for me and suburban horror, whether it's Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Poltergeist, fast forward to newer movies, suburban Gothic, there's, there's different ones that are out there. Um, for me as an historian, it allows me to sort of analyze what is this telling me about the society that's producing this cultural product in this sense, horror. So I can look at, um, suburban horror becoming not brand new but becoming far more uh, shown in movies and cultural products from the 1970s forward um, and we're also seeing uh, maybe you want to call it a suburban horror but horror films that take place in suburbs which means something it just means that's what most Americans are going to identify with because most Americans live there so we're going to relocate horrific events to the landscape most of us recognize but uh, for me looking at suburban horror is really to to suggest that Contrary to the suburban good life image that we're sold, that it's a very dark place as well, and monsters and things that go bump in the night exist there and can be created there. 
Well, that reminds me of, of Poltergeist because, you know, that was some kind of a landmark film in that the ghosts are, are, are inhabiting not some old creepy mansion that's got a backstory. It's just, it's just track, track housing. Yeah, there's this real estate track, development yeah. in Reagan's America, and then, oops, we build on an Indian cemetery, and next thing you know, it's, evil ensues. I'm, I'm going to cut in. It's not an Indian burial ground. Oh. No, you're, you're thinking of a pet cemetery. Where everyone, everyone remembers it that way, because I think they even say in the movie, this isn't even an Indian burial ground. Oh, These gotcha. are just people. That's right. No, you're correct. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And then Poltergeist 2... No, no, Pet Cemetery was an Indian burial ground, I believe, wasn't it? Or, or shunned land. Yeah, shunned land. Yeah. That, that thing. It's still an indictment on, on um, suburban sprawl. Right. And the history of haunting and supernatural horror in general is about social mobility and real estate purchases and stuff like that. It's, it's about like um, inheriting the old mansion, mm-hmm. um, at, which with all the, what, freighted backstory of culture and history um, going to erupt back up. The idea of the suburbs, which ostensibly is a is a place with no history, um, is where that kind of becomes interesting. Well, well, well I, I, as, as somebody who's, that's actually the thing I, I, I launch into the most in my studies is that history is indicted as a placeless, as a place without history. And uh, what we find more and more is that it couldn't be further from the truth, right? We sing songs about little boxes and where we look at who's inside those little boxes and that there's actual people there, suburbia, neat suburbanites. And so I think that we see all these horror tropes relocate to suburbia precisely because they're human. Well, uh, Meredith, uh, now I don't, I, I don't know if you're a uh, child of the suburbs or not. Oh, oh, I am. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I am too. And uh, the thing is with the suburbs is that it's always been and handled very uh, suspiciously in, in academics, not, not just in horror, whatever, but also just in just straightforward ethnographic studies, things like this. Oh, the suburbs, and you know, and it, and it's always a lie. And it's always like behind those doors there, there's people having affairs, and there's a murder going on here in this suburb, and, and they always academics are very negative on suburbia. Yes. And uh, and the fact that now horror has become invested in. I mean, and I'm also thinking of Edward Scissorhands, which is more of a is a fantasy film, still, yeah. but it's still set in the suburbs. Yep. Well, even something like The Burbs with Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have this like idyllic neighborhood, and just one little rumor about the creepy house next door launches into this whole like we have to break in and you know the house. They were right. There was something you know scary going on, but it's really just this silly campy little film about mm-hmm. you know you get bored in a neighborhood and this is what happens mm-hmm. you see I'm from a small town and that's a whole different kind of horror mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <I feel> sure. <laughs> but I, I like how in the sense that when you do talk about suburban horror horror that takes place in suburbia we're getting back to this is a common experience that many Americans can identify with first and foremost hence its power as, as a narrative um, but also that indictment of the places that we live. Um, so you can see earlier movies from 20s, 30s, and 40s in which the city was the predominant uh, place for people to live and film noir and things that are bad in the city, rear window in an apartment complex in the city. Everything's moving out to the burbs, even our horror movies. So right now, the suburbs are, you know, the suburbs are fueled by white flight, right? So it's, so it's like... Um, we have a whole bunch of movies that aren't always explicitly horror movies that are set in the mean streets of, of 
of, of the inner city, you know, and, and you've got a very racialized thing going mm-hmm. on there. And, and now um, people with money are moving back to the city. Yeah, right? that's the new white flight. Yeah, whereas, whereas <laughs> the suburbs are increasingly really quite diverse, right? Very. Um, so, and always have been, actually. So how do you, how do you imagine the horror movies uh, spinning the new realities of real estate pricing and demographic shifts and things like that. Well, I think it's gentrification, right? In downtown areas is where you're going to see more and more. What, is it One Night in Soho? One Night in Soho, yeah. That, right, which which seems to be a, a, what a, a longing for the griminess <laughs> without understanding what the griminess really, really was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I thought that film was... Uh, Meredith, have you seen Last Night in Soho? I have not when yet, they, uh, but I've, I've Last known Night so. like a little bit. Well, because it, I mean, it's it, it's the uh, was it Anna Taylor Joy or whatever her name is, Anna Joy, Anna Joy, whatever. Um, she uh, her character is has this very uh, rosy false soldier for the sixties. I mean, she just you know she's way before her time, but she imagines what a what a cool time it was, glamorous and you know London. Uh, hipness in Carnaby Street and you know like and late she's a fashion student and she's so a fashion it's, it's student it's all about the look for yeah her. it's all about the look and the images and then and then she goes to this portal goes back in time and and, and it's almost like I just said it's almost like a is is an unreliable narrator is she's is she having a nervous breakdown or whatever but then when she sees the real ugly truth of what it was like how it's very patriarchal and becomes it, it, I don't want to give away too much of it but there's there is a, a, a seamy underbelly to it that she that she had was totally unaware of until she gets it face to face. So, and there were the horror comes out of her disillusionment or with the absolute reality of what it's actually like, you know, and you could make a drama out of that too, but they, they made it kind of a sort of a psychological slash horror supernatural. Now, Paul, you said the ending to it was sort of unsatisfactory to you. It was for me. And, uh, interestingly enough, I watched it with a 16 year old, uh, female cousin of mine and we disagreed on our enjoyment of it. Mm-hmm. Because I found no resolution, she did. And so without resolution beyond the, I'm creating a sequel to a slasher movie right. where there's ambiguity there, where the killer disappears at the end. This, for me, was just, it was too ambiguous. And at the end, she sees not her mother. She, throughout the film, she sees her uh, dead mother in, in the mirror, right? Sort of talking to her and she, uh, suggesting she has these psychic capabilities. Um and um, her mother's sort of a grounding figure. Then she goes through this horrific episode uh, with the Anna Joy Taylor person existing in the 60s. And at the end, she sees her in the mirror. And she had turned out to be a murderous person herself, though the circumstances surrounding what made her a killer are horrific. Um, so I was left, this is not resolved. <laughs> and so for me. <laughs> so I like the ending. Um, it, it, it worked for me, but I also like, on the one hand, the source of horror in that movie is that um, folks aren't going to believe her, right? So, yeah. so she's she's either borderline um, psychiatric uh, troubles or she's psychic, and we don't know which one it is. And and that again, that's that's a really old source of horror where we're just going to have um, it's often women or teenagers or children who are aware of a reality that other folks can't quite share in 
Um, they're aware of dangers um, and complexities that no one else takes seriously. Um, and whether that's like the teenage movies like The Blob, where they're, they're aware of the alien threat, but uh, no adult will listen to them, or um, the sort of classic kinds of female psychological horror where we've got um, like Rosemary's Baby or, or Gaslight, you know, where we've got um, people who culturally aren't listened to um, and and we're allowed to go along for the ride and to focalize with them mm-hmm. and to see the frustrations. And, and it feels like for something like Get Out or something like that, again, the ability to... And, and to zigzag, the, the moment in the upscale suburb at the very beginning of the movie yeah. where we've got somebody who's walking along um, and realizes that given his race the upscale suburbs are completely not a safe place to be, you know, and, and we're, we, we get that sense of um, this is a place where bad things really happen to people like him. Yeah. Right? Well, as Ice Cube says in Friday part two, the tagline, the suburbs make the hood look good. <laughs> <laughs> well, what you, what you were touching on there kind of brings me to, me to mind what you uh, explained earlier, uh, Meredith, was about the final girl. And I would say, you know, as far as like a landmark for both a suburban setting and the final girl would, would be Halloween, the first Halloween movie with Jamie Lee Curtis. And um, I was telling Paul about this. Um, they apparently screened that film. Uh, I saw this on the, on the news. They had one of those news features where they they, uh, uh, they screened the movie for some uh, high school and college kids from just a couple of years ago who were all horror fans, big horror fans. And they screened the movie for them, and they all just laughed at it. They thought it was stupid. They thought it was dumb. They thought it wasn't scary at all. And they were like, oh, I knew the guy was going to do this. I knew it. You know. And the guy had who was showing the film to them had to point out, look, this film, all those tropes that you're tired of, this film invented them. All of these, these little these tropes and these cliches and these jump scares that you're rolling your eyes at, um, and also the the girl who's you know having sex is getting killed all those like as if it's some kind of corporal punishment this film basically invented it so did you know i mean how do you feel halloween holds up after all these years i okay so when i first watched it in high school it, it kind of had that like first watch effect where we were like oh man this is like pretty good and then a couple years later watching it in college with some friends and it really is just a corny movie i mean when i Think about think about it. There's a scene where the the couple's having sex. The guy goes downstairs, and Michael Myers goes up. He kills him, and he pins him to the wall with the like kitchen knife that he mm-hmm. killed him with. Yeah. Like that would never happen. And so that kind of ta- like that's just not physically possible. So that kind of takes away from some of the horror of it. But I feel like if you watch it with that right crowd, it's still gonna be fun it's still gonna be semi-effective you, you know it is scary to like think about like what would you do if you were given the care of some children and now all of a sudden you're being hunted like and a number of those like when a stranger calls you know the, yeah. the babysitter alone in the house you know not only usually a a young teen in those um and then who has completely helpless children under her care um that's been a really rich mine and there's been now six or seven of those that that I'm aware of, and and that idea of again, you've got like whether it's a phone call that mm-hmm. that that everyone else thinks is a prank, 
or whether it's, um, you know, uh, the way that those, that suburban exterior as, as they're running around trying, trying to bang on the doors and trying to let people know that they're, they're being chased by a killer, that there seems to be usually nobody home. Yeah. The, the, the idea that we have that cultural story, um, from which is largely legendary about the the woman who got killed in the middle of the of the city block. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That happened in, 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 in she was yelling for help and no one. Yeah, yeah that's a famous story. But yeah. at least there's people to hear. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the suburbs where you've you've got wide lawns and atomic families, um, it, it always seems like there's there's this blank surface, you know, that that they're up against. That it's it's a pretty alienated and alienating um, place to be chased by a killer. Yes, that's how Marxist of you. Um, <laughs> you know, I can't resist um, suggesting as a historian that's a value of a lot of the, uh, horror movies for me, but this is true about any cultural product, whether it's advertisements, songs, novels, you know, uh, suburban horror films, it offers us a chance to, to look in the mirror, per se, right? So when we're looking at a film like Halloween, we can make apologies. Hey, this is the first time they did any of these things, so it was scary. But it also allows me to show the film in my classroom as a way to analyze the 1970s. Here we are at a moment in time where suburbia, um, 1980 census tells us it is now the uh, most dominant place in the United States where the majority of Americans live. So it's taking place through the 70s um, through 2000, where it becomes the absolute majority. So here we are, 1978. Um, John Carpenter is releasing a kid who was born and raised in suburbia uh, who kills his uh, babysitting uh, sister. Yeah. And <laughs> now is going to face, uh, or now he's going to return to the suburbs to stalk the babysitter. And this is really a mirror into the anxieties of 1970s America. This is something I noticed when I did a class where I looked at um, different remakes. Um, nationally of, of different horror films so I was looking at The Ring as it's uh, as we have the Japanese like a TV miniseries and then we have the, the famous Japanese movie and then we have the American localization and you can really tell what it is about children that each one and raising children mm-hmm. that each one of those cultures is anxious about mm-hmm. and it's really really not the same yeah. Well, yeah, and that's the value of these things is cultural products. Well, you know the the interesting thing about, um, I know Hollywood does, you know, do a lot of films that were made originally made in Europe or Asia. You know, they uh, they do a remake of it, and sometimes it's it's good, or sometimes it's not as good. Sometimes it's really substandard because they try to you know sterilize it for Western audiences or something like that. And uh, I do know. I mean. Some, there's some Japanese horror films that are just really, just really disturbing. Mm-hmm. They're, I mean, they're, they're just like even for a, a, a American audience, they're like, oh, that is just like really dark. And uh, so, and they could easily, okay, we'll put the, no, that's too much even for us, even though we are trying to scare people. At the same time, they'll do these Saw movies, mm-hmm. uh, and I always thought I've, I've never seen one, but I've seen enough clips on YouTube. It's like, you know, so here's this guy who's dying of cancer. Who has all this uh, uh, these funds available, and he can build these huge Rube Goldbergian torture traps, and then surgically implant keys in the people. Like, how the heck does he do all this? You know, this one guy who is just able to do this to like dozens of people over and and there's no explanation for this. People just kind of they just buy it. You know, that's 
one of the things where you were talking about the the vastly silly uh, yeah. right. layer right. of the slasher film when when for a while there it's an arms race about who can be killed with the silliest thing mm-hmm. you know what's going to be impressive what's yeah. going to be spattery what's going to likewise we've kind of upped that game to 20 yeah. with with something like the Saw movies I think once you're worried about the backstory in a movie like that you've lost the point well yeah just, you have to use, <laughs> you, you, know, have, you have to suspend an awful lot of disbelief you yeah. know even you know even with with ghost stories and things well, like I that well I mean you know. uh, Avengers <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Green Hulk, I mean. <laughs> well, I know. They have Which are, is a, a horrifying, by the way. Yeah. Well, those are, com- those are comic book films, too, because they're comic book characters. So they're, yeah. But, but I mean, here it's sort of like, it's like, well, this could happen or something like right. this. Or this, this, mm-hmm. this could, there could be a Saw-like killer out there. It's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. But the, the Saw films, what I also find interesting is, again, here we are in a post-Abu Ghraib uh, world where we're debating about the role of torture and the gathering of intelligence information and the so-called war on terror, and then we get movies like Eli Roth's Hostels and yeah. uh, a film like Saw. So there's that larger, larger cultural critique taking place as well. Yeah, but is it a cultural critique or is it just is it just exploitive horror? I, I think it's yes. Yeah. <laughs> both. It's, it's always both. Um, it's always both. It, yeah. it it would be difficult to to put together a, a feature film that didn't wrap up the culture that even if you're not trying to and maybe even if especially you're trying not to um, you're going to uh, package all of the assumptions you know all of the not necessarily overt critique but just like what does this movie assume a family looks like what does this movie assume you know uh, somebody's house looks like what does this movie assume um, social life is like And, and, and even in a genre film or again, maybe especially a genre film, we sort of catch a bunch of that stuff all at once. Um, it just it naturally comes into the scoop. So, so if I'm going to say it's a typical teenager, what a typical teenager is every year is yeah. is going to be quite different. It also, I think, takes into consideration like what the audience is going to get from it. Because if you look at like Night of the Living Dead, right? Everybody when you talk about the movie it's hard not to talk about the the racial symbolism when mm-hmm. that was kind of just like an accident like he he casted that actor simply because he was the best actor but that totally changes the tone of the film especially for it being 1968 um so it's not just what the filmmakers putting into it but what the audience is going to you know we know about the time so we're going to apply that to the movie mm-hmm. and there's that accident of what it's reception's aesthetic right where you where you each each film is made of its time and in its time. Usually horror movies are looking back not only to real history, but to film history. So you've got a whole backstory of, of movies that you're kind of remixing whenever you make a genre film. Um, then at the same time, when every generation looks at it again, it's going to hit different, right? So, so that kids who are already savvy in the ultra meta horror stuff look at first generation slashers and find them kind of quaint right um so i recently rewatched uh Werner herzog's nosferatu and if you haven't seen it it's a great movie oh yeah um, yeah it's on, you can watch on youtube yeah so it's a uh, it's set in the middle of a so lots of things you can do with dracula he leans in on the plague and there's a there's a scene where 
um, the remaining townspeople are carrying the coffins of the rest of the townspeople through the square. And, and she's like, I know what's, I know the cause of this. I, I know what's happening and no one will listen to her. And in the last few years, that hits different. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like sometimes movies will come back into real stark relevance. You know, I don't, I don't know what in 1974 or whatever it is that, that Herzog's responding to, but I know what it looks like yeah. he's responding to now. Well, I know they did, uh, uh, I, I think it has uh, Max, actually William Defoe playing it, it's the Shadow of the Vampire, mm-hmm. which is about the making of Nosferatu, and the, and the premise to the film is that they actually cast a real vampire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. That, that Max von Schreck, who played the original mm-hmm. in the Nosferatu, he was an actual vampire, so uh, they, they didn't actually cast an actual vampire. We had cast a real vampire, which I thought was kind of an interesting uh, gimmick and, to it. And know. it works really well with everything we know about Nosferatu, the movie, right? So, well, yeah, the original film, So that yeah. Murnau was the guy who said, you don't hire people to be villagers. Mm-hmm. You find villagers and you point the camera at them. You know, they don't yeah. need to act, they need to be. Yeah. And, and so it's a natural extension that you would that that would happen right and, and, and in that movie um, I think that's a brilliant movie by the way and it's almost impossible to get now um, are you talking the original one no uh, Shadow of the Vampire oh, oh, it's, yeah. it's not yeah. released you have to yeah. buy old DVDs yeah. but it's uh, the kind of brilliance of it is that when you're watching a horror movie you often have to stop and say okay so it's kind of like a an exercise in Twilight Zone watching yeah. it's like who was the real monster after all? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in that one, what the, the hubris of film, yeah. you know, the, the idea that you can catch reality. Uh, and yeah. we've got the monomaniacal director who, who's like certainly out vampires, the vampire, yeah. you know, by, <laughs> by the end of it. I think again, that's a movie that makes a comment on a previous movie and all movies. It's, well, you know, I was thinking about like haunted house movies. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you have any of you saw The Haunting of Hill House. Did you, did you all see it? I've written on it. <clears throat> yeah, because I was really impressed with that. With that, that because I mean, the fact that they would take what is technically a you know a, a brief novel by Shirley Jackson and turns it into this epic miniseries, mm-hmm. and they was they were really able to just extend it and, and didn't feel padded at all, and uh, and it seemed to have so many layers of uh, subtext to it that you wouldn't mm-hmm. find in a one-dimensional haunted house, uh, because all the characters, you know, they have their backstories, they have their demons and things like this, and and uh, <clears throat> and I just thought it was re- really well done, but it's. It always makes me laugh when they because they they still make these movies where like someone and they inherit the mansion here, and it's like when you pull up there, it's like, oh god, why are you moving into that? <laughs> why are you moving into that house? Modern, it just looks it just modern looks, real estate prices. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, they say, yeah, yeah it's a fixer upper. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Frankly, right now, I know a lot of people who would move into literally everything, yeah. <laughs> literally anything. Get, Eighty thousand dollars. Yeah. Boom. It Castle Dracula. They're they're yeah. they're they're down. Yeah. It's all yeah, it's because it, it you know okay yeah, I'll, uh, 
because you know that's the thing is like, like the horror they've done films like this there was like I forgot what it was called The Money Trap with uh, Money, money, yeah, pit. money yeah, pit with uh, Tom Hanks where and Shelley Long I guess they you know, they buy a fixer upper and it, just, it, it, be, it just becomes this huge you know financial sinkhole it's, it's own horror and that's actually a play on a 1948 film Mr. Building, uh, Mr. Mr. Blandings Builds His Dream Home yeah. Ice Cube remade it as Are We Done Yet yeah. so it, it just keeps coming up <laughs> so one of the things in horror movies you have to figure out why they're there, right? Whether it's a summer camp experience or whatever. And then you have to figure out why they can't leave, mm-hmm. right? And so there are some recent ones where, well, even something like uh, some of the early runs, like uh, like Poltergeist, where that's, mm-hmm. they've sunk all their money into that place. Yep. And, and there's no financial way that they can get out. There's a couple of pretty good ones recently that have like people with ankle monitors on. Yeah, you know, so so they mm-hmm. they're sort of geo locked into the into the area. Yeah, I saw one like it was take off a rear window. You know, Dis- Disturbia. Disturbia. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mary, you you you're a college student as opposed to us old wizened individuals here. Um, what does your you know? You young twenty year olds, what is it you watch that makes you scared? What is it you, you find enjoyable? Well, I think what it comes down to, like when what what I like about horror movies is it's kind of like a it's a way to control, you know, you when you find like just this idea of the like slasher thing, right? Like that's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, but to sit down and say I'm gonna watch this and I have the power to turn it on, I have the power to turn it off, I'm gonna be in control of this fear. You know, I think that's kind of like an interesting element of it. I mean, there are things that I I won't watch. I won't watch like a paranormal like possession movie. I can't do that. Really? No, Why not? I can't do that. Oh, I'm I'm a good Catholic, and that scares me. <laughs> <laughs> Which I know plenty of other Catholics who do like him, but it's just crossing some lines that I don't want to necessarily get my hands dirty with. When you believe the metaphysics of of the film, <laughs> that 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 changes things. A yeah. Bit. Right. So wait, so so yeah, so a guy with a machete is more acceptable to you yeah, than than, than an embodied uh, demonic spirit. Yeah, <laughs> I I would much rather much rather fight some guy with a knife or a chainsaw than than anything else. Really? I, yeah, I mean, what I mean, which is much more likely not. than an actual poltergeist attacking, which is probably not going to happen. So yeah, I don't know, but <laughs> I I just think that it's like kind of interesting to see like. I, I do like the silly, let's just chase people around. Yeah. Like, I, I think every movie would be improved with a chainsaw. <laughs> like, you know. Cause Godfather, like, yeah. My, my one, like, exception in the, like, possession movies is I love the Evil Dead. I love the Evil Dead. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think what makes that movie so silly is that it takes something that could potentially be really scary and it just has Bruce Campbell with a chainsaw opening yeah, his mouth right. every time something's like splattering towards him. Mm-hmm. So there's that idea where you can have something where the physical horror shocks you and lingers with you, like a particular scene in Hereditary, where you're just like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that happened. Whereas the same thing happening in a Bruce Campbell movie, yeah, is, like is, I, I can is see slapstick. I yeah, can slapstick. see that pencil going into someone's ankle, like in the Evil Dead. Like that's stick. fine, but any other kind of body horror is like a no. I, I don't want to think about that. Well, bodies in Evil Dead don't act like real bodies you know they, they splatter a great deal more one suspects as if it's sort of like in those from dusk till dawn movies as if the vampires are spongy and their blood is under high pressure yeah you know so that they they, they pop when they're killed and, and and yeah that 
for me, the horror where there's kind of a, a sliding scale between things that are kind of refreshingly goofy. Right. And I, I think The Evil Dead, the way it does horror comedy, is a lot different from, like, a parody or a satire type movie. Like, instead of flipping back and forth between let's do a joke, let's do a jump scare, mm. it just kind of pushes things so it takes something silly and it pushes it until you're a little unsettled or it does something scary and it keeps pushing it until it just becomes kind of goofy well paul i wanted to ask you about um since you've obviously been uh watching a lot of films uh horror films uh it seems like horror the the combination of horror and comedy has become more and more prevalent in other words films where where it's like an evil dead as an example of that where just parts of that are really just funny and then it's hilarious and there's other feeling like Scream is kind of like that too. It's a slasher film. I didn't lady like Scream, but um, but you take that back. Oh, okay. How dare you? You take that back. I, I, I just didn't. I don't know. I just didn't think it was that it, scary. It, it's it's the satire. It's not yeah. supposed to scare you totally. It's mm. just supposed to point out all the things. It's, You're it's supposed to feel clever because you knew all those tropes already yeah. before yeah. they got named. You know that that, that well, thing. not to be silly, but I mean, comedy and horror have a long lasting relationship because Abbott and Costello met every monster that's well, yeah, ever been sure. created, right? Yeah, yeah but, um, but but it was more of the irony of their meeting Frankenstein. There's nothing scary about those films. But there are films where there is like Evil Dead, which I did like. I really did enjoy mm-hmm. that movie where it, it is just some really just dark, creepy, you know, on people rising on a day you know, this, this stitched up woman dancing around, you know, it's just oh, and then Bruce Campbell being all, yeah, get, get, yeah, well, being it was, all it spawned a whole uh, sort of genre that's been called splat stick, yeah, right, and sort of follows that, you know, that this horrendous, horrendous gore, mm-hmm. but it's made silly, it's not hyper realistic, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I don't know, comedy and, and horror, I'm sure you can date a lot of earlier ones but when I was growing up you know Fright Night was mm-hmm. a very clearly horror sort of driven comedy where the vampire lives next door in suburbia um, once bitten with um, Jim Carrey mm-hmm. um, yeah but that, that's that's, really not a com- that's, yeah. that's a comedy well, that's not a horror you know, Dracula dead and loving it yeah, well <laughs> I would uh, definitely with Fright Night I would I'd separate from those I, I think you're getting at you know what? What genre do you want to call it? Mm-hmm. You know, is this horror comedy or is this comedy horror? I think one that blends it really well is American Werewolf in London from the yep. early '80s. I thought that that was a really clever use of both. You know, because you know, like when he transforms into the werewolf, I mean that is really Horrific, well yeah. done. It wasn't just like Lon Chaney, you know, like you know, yeah. with the with the crosses all of him gluing hair on him and stuff like this. It's like they're, they're doing that. It's like really when I remember seeing this in the theater, like oh. It was like really disturbing when he turns into it, you know. And then, but then it's got all this, you know, and his his buddy who comes back from the dead. He's all rotting. He's like, you know, oh, will you be serious? He's just in his skin, and he's like cracking all these, he's doing all these one lines with his, with his flesh is falling off his face. I thought it was really clever. It was it was a very innovative combination of comedy and horror. But it wasn't like you said, joke and then uh, horror and joke. It was nuanced. It was blended together very well. So. Agreed, agreed. Uh, and you have moments where I think often comedy elements are introduced in these horror films for levity and then to then get you scared again because it, it, it sort of it gets you off your guard. Um, I can watch Lost Boys. It's dark, it's brooding, and then I got the two Corys hamming it up, right? 
literally. Well, that, that, that's yeah. that's those two are but, their own horror stories. Yeah, yeah, right. right. <laughs> but it, you know, it brings a levity to the situation. That also yeah. puts me in a position to be scared again. I think right. easy. It's like a reset, and, and yeah. even Shakespeare, you know, even Macbeth has the Porter speech. You yeah, know, yeah. There's there's yep. always um, in anything that's very good, um, you're gonna have a range of tones, um, and and really sometimes when I'm looking at there are some movies that I think are quite good, but they don't. They're they've got one lane. Yeah, and, and they they go it all the way down. Like um, there's a there's a pretty good kind of ultra low budget horror called Vigil mm-hmm. um, that I watched recently, and there's just not, you know, it, it, it's 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 a really great exercise in how much you can do with one house and a small outside space, you know, and and mostly one actor, right? Um, but it something like you know something like Poltergeist where it's like it's a thrill ride it's a comedy it's mm-hmm. it's serious it's a you know um, it, it, it's Spielberg or is it Hooper you know that, that yeah. thing um, where where you're kind of put through a lot more things and so I think things where you could, something like American Werewolf in London where by the end of it you're actually sympathetic towards the guy right he, yeah. it, it's a tragedy yeah um, but it's also laugh out loud in places and it's also um, you know it's almost peak practical effects I mean I think the thing is going to out out thing it yeah but uh, but yeah I saw a really interesting film uh, uh, it was last year it was put out it's called Con- at Convergence and it's, you can see it. it's a low budget film I think it made for like $35,000 hmm. and uh, it was made by some actors who were it was, it was the um, because the pandemic was going on so they it's set in the house and it's in the sub- suburb and they're having a dinner party and then also the power goes out and they look out, and there's a comet going overhead. It's that there's, there's a comet going overhead. And also, the power goes out in the, in the neighborhood. And they look out the window, and they see, oh, there's one house down the street that's got its lights on. So they go, okay, well, so two people go, two or three of them go down there to check out why they have power, and nobody else does. They have a generator. They go down there, and they come back, they're like this, and they're like, what's wrong? Because so we just look in the window, and we saw us. So the same dinner party is going on down the street. And then they realize, and, and then, the, the, then four of them go out one night, go do more investigating, and see four people across the street, and it's them. And they realize when they come over, they just basically different portals have opened up. Mm. And what happens is, what's really interesting is that when one person goes out on a liaison or a surveillance, they come back, they get, how do we know you're from our house? Maybe you're from the house down there. And the paranoia gets more and more, sorry, the, the paranoia gets more and more ramped up, and pretty soon they're just screaming, attacking mm. each other. And I just thought it was brilliant. It was so good. And what was really interesting about it was that the they didn't have a written script. They just sort of had notes, and it was improvised. So it has a very lifelike, naturalistic conversation. But it was, and it was made for like nothing, $35,000. And it got didn't get hardly any business, but got phenomenal reviews. So if you can see it, you should see it. Because even though it's more of a psychological thing, it's really scary. Because yeah. the, these people, that the, they start getting more and more like, you know, it, how do I know you're my husband? Maybe you're from the guy down the one husband down the street. So here's one reason why horror has always been popular. Um, it's exceptionally cheap to make. Yes, it is. In the sense that if if you make if you make a, a sci-fi movie with a super low budget, no one's going to watch it. Whereas you can uh, you can go out and make Friday the Thirteenth, which was 
very low budget, you know. And, and well, even today they're like seven. Yeah. You know, like the typical studio film is like sixty million dollars, and they they make these films for seven, eight million. Well, that, they always evil, make money. That's how Evil Dead got started. Sam Raimi had started with Super Eight comedy short films, and when they decided they wanted to do full length feature. They decided on the Evil Dead, and even that, they had to go home and fundraise for a while. But it was still <laughs> far cheaper than any other genre. Well, the people working on that were what the Coen brothers, who learned from that that they had to sell their first movie as a horror movie. It was sold. Blood Simple was sold as a horror movie, which it isn't. But no, but it's a brilliant uh, film. Yeah, but, it's a brilliant but film. that idea that people believe in your ability to turn out a horror movie for very little money, and I mean, what Paranormal Activity is. I think still the most profitable film ever made. Oh, mm. or maybe um, uh, return on investment. Yeah, <laughs> right. well, or what about the other found footage film, uh, Blair Witch? Blair, Blair Witch. Witch. Yeah, and uh, yeah, Blair Witch also went huge. Blair Witch had a little bit more of a budget. Uh, yeah, but I think it was only like thirty thousand oh, dollars. Yeah, like this, and yeah. you had to. Uh, th- that one is fun because it's what there's a moment there where that movie could have happened the way it happened and now thanks to the internet it can never happen again well yeah because yeah. the whole found footage thing is like they, you, you can't that's a trope that just you can't yeah. do anymore it was such an early it. pioneer of that I don't know if it's the first or not the somebody says film but I remember it, it being at such a moment to where I remember being alive for it, hearing people yeah. talk about that and you know here I am not disbelieving it yeah. I'm, I'm maybe sitting there going well surely not but yeah. still but there was a moment there where everybody was talking like that there was a moment there where they could do viral um, marketing where yeah. you actually put out wanted posters for the actors and you have the actors holed up in a hotel. <laughs> yeah. And a Cannibal Holocaust had done that before where the guys, the director's actually taken to court and has to prove that he didn't kill his actors. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> well, I, Mary, I don't know if you're, this is way before your time, but I know that in the 60s when they used to do these Roger Corman films and stuff, they would uh, or they do these these films were like I think what was it uh, House on Haunted Hill, uh, which in the theater they actually had a skeleton like one of those Halloween skeletons on on a, on a pulley pulley it would swing down over the audience you know and they would rig up with electrical shocks and things like this or there was uh, you know a tarantula coming in like this they had these little they have all the, they would wire up the, the the movie seats you know and it's for kids you know people just they would wear it because they all go this is when a totally different culture back then you mm-hmm. know but so they did everything they could they had like smell-o-vision and, or, or the sense around and all these these kind of gimmicky things that are now laughable but they did whatever they could to enhance the effect the effect of it um so um in the time we have remaining i guess i wanted to ask what uh meredith i want to start with you what what do you think is the future of this genre where, where do you think it's going to go what do you think they're going to explore that's tough um i mean i think we're going to start seeing i mean i mentioned the pandemic earlier i think we're going to start seeing not necessarily like illness type movies but um whereas before we would maybe see movies about isolation and how scary it can be to be by yourself I think we're going to kind of start seeing maybe a reverse of that, where how scary is it to be in a big crowd of people or, you know, um, kind of like reverse isolation. Um, I think that's going to maybe start being a trend. Um, I don't know beyond that, though, um, if someone else has thoughts. I feel like there are certain areas that are going to continue to be mined. So, um, like the Bloomhouse movies that come out just as regular as can yeah. be and, and explore every kind of theme um, fairly competently. You know, a lot of those are pretty good and a lot of them are, are not. So 
I don't know what like the shakeup in the streaming services budgets for original film is going to do because a lot of those are sort of made in-house um, or are originals um, now that we're um, divvying up HBO Max and stuff like yeah. that. So, so I think I think the financial end of the streaming uh, platforms may uh, may impact things. I think uh, I think you can just expect always some stuff that's getting way stale. So lately there's been a whole bunch of prequels and requels and remakes. Um, and, and I think that we're, because of the way films are financed again, I think that those are such a sure thing that they're, they're tempting, but, but they've been not great um, lately. Um, so I kind of anticipate, especially since, um, since processing and shooting video is so much cheaper than it used to be mm-hmm. um, there's always going to be sort of a well of new filmmakers popping up um, you know I, I watched fairly recently um, what is already a quaint um, artifact of our period which is a the zoom horror movie you know oh yeah yeah, yeah I, with, I, I forgot it was what it's called but yeah the zoom thing you're all being killed and <laughs> right and, and, and then at the end it's the runtime of the movie is the length that you can run a Zoom call without a license. Oh. You know, so it's, it's, it's the auto cutoff point for that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, again, as any new media comes out or any new tech comes out, yeah. I think we'll see that immediately reflected. He stole my thunder. I mean, <laughs> I, that's exactly where I was going to go. I, technology is just always going to be there from dropping an atomic bomb to getting yeah. against Godzilla and 50 feet uh, women to... Um, uh, Black Mirror, social media, uh, cell phones, Zoom, whatever the latest, greatest technology is. I think the pandemic's right. And also these social issues, they just don't go away. Our society hasn't solved them. <laughs> so they're still there. And so we still have the issues of racism, sexism. Um, these are always going to be explored. I think trans issues are going to continue to be or will be more explored in, in horror films. Um, and it isn't so much that these things are going to be new. It's just that they might be highlighted even more um, as, as before. Okay. Paul, Steve, Meredith, thank you, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.